This morning, we're going to um, continue on in the same theme from the past couple of teachings, and that is in consideration of the tabernacles, the dwelling places of God. Initially, God dwelt with man, that is, he would walk with him in the cool of the day. But after Adam's disobedience in the garden, it was no longer safe for man to walk with God. And so God removed his physical presence from the earth that he had created. And it wasn't until about 2,500 years later that God would get a dwelling place again and be able to habitate with man. And that would be from the tabernacle of Moses, the instructions that were given to Moses to create a place where he could be worshipped, where he could speak and commune with his people. And... There were very specific instructions that were given, and this was a place where uh, once a year, one person, the great high priest, the high priest could, um, was allowed to enter into the holy place and meet with God, the place where his glory rested. And the second house or dwelling place for God was built by King David. It was referred to in several places as the tabernacle of David. David made quite a few changes from the tabernacle of Moses, from Moses' time. First off, the ark was in the middle of the tent, not in the back. We read nowhere that there was a hidden room. There was no veil that we read of. In fact, every one of the Levites would sing praise around the ark. It wasn't just reserved for one priest once a year. All of them, day and night, would not cease to give praise and worship to God. This is the order of David, or the Davidic order. And one particularly neat thing about this tabernacle is that it is referred to by Isaiah and Amos about being restored in the future. And so when we fast forward to the New Testament, James asserts that the Gentiles who were now baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were trying to figure out in Jerusalem, that is the Jewish Christians, what should be done with these, uh, with Paul and Barnabas, namely, who were spreading the gospel to the Gentiles and what should be done with the Gentiles that were seemingly filled with the Holy Spirit that they had received in the upper room. And so James, quoting this prophecy of Amos, uh, points to and says that this is a partial fulfillment or this is the fulfillment of this tabernacle of David being restored, meaning there is a time coming where the extension of David's worship will extend to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the promise that God had given to Abraham. But it's also a time that we see Um, a fulfillment in the early church, that David's order of worship, the, the very worship that God gave to David, not something that he made up, the Lord put it on his heart, and you can read about all these scriptures, go back to the last two sermons if you're missing any of this, this is all review, that that, that is the, the image and the picture for the Gentile converts, that we would have this same commitment to that one thing that David had, a love for the presence of God, a, a, an attitude of worship continually, and how do we as a church and body of believers carry that forward? And so I want to pick back up on the heels of that um, this morning. Uh, I originally had set out to compare the tabernacle of God to the tabernacle of um, David and Moses, and we read about the tabernacle of God in Revelation a few months back, we just in passing read it. You can go and study it on your own, but basically the tabernacle of God is, is his final resting place, is that in the new heavens and the new earth, that's going to be his abode. And when we know that that word in the Greek, the tabernacle is dwelling. It literally means the dwelling place of God. And so ultimately, the, the, we don't have a lot of information on the tabernacle of God, but what's happening is there's the same theme throughout all of Scripture is The tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of David, the tabernacle of God is always his dwelling place where he will be worshipped. Fast forward yourself into the new kingdom. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be around God the Father in his presence, his very presence. We don't read of a tent. There's no sun. This is the city that he's created, and we're going to be there in a worshipful attitude because he's going to be descended upon us once again as he did upon the new earth with Adam and Eve. So that's the tabernacle of of God. Now, in this theme, I said last week 
Well, let me back up. As a part of review, again, this is from last week. Just jumping ahead myself a little bit. Every time in Scripture that we see this Davidic order of worship, that is, the worship with instruments specifically, the worship that David instituted, and we see continuous worship, day and night worship. There was always breakthrough and revival or deliverance for the people of God. Seven times in Scripture, and I gave you those last week, every single time there was worship restored, the Davidic order restored, there was breakthrough for the people of God. This is what we want to apply to ourselves, is that every time we see this continuous worship with instruments, there will be breakthrough, revival, and deliverance that will follow the people of God. Now, I said last week that David was not allowed to build the temple, a permanent house of God. He was a man of war. He had bloodshed on his hands. And that is why he built God a tent. But before his death, we had read that he had been collecting stones and gold and iron for Solomon's temple, all the way down to iron for the nails. This is what the Bible outlines. And he gave all the plans for worship, this worship center, to Solomon. And this would be the third building in which God's presence would rest, the Temple of Solomon. And I want to see if we can glean anything from studying this structure this morning, this bizarre structure that was built twice and destroyed twice, and see if we can't apply anything to ourselves. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. The beginning of Solomon's temple actually starts some 1,100 years earlier. 11 hundred years before the, the construction of Solomon's temple. Some of you will put this together very quickly. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things, God had tested Abraham. This was after these things as him being, um, having child, the fulfillment of the promises. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. That's a, that's a good response, by the way, if God calls you by name. Here I am. Samuel said the th same thing. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Verse 9, they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now you know the, the account, stretching out his hand to kill him, angel intervenes and stops him, and they find a ram caught in a thicket. Abraham, well, let me, let me just pause here and say, I don't believe Abraham fully understands what's going on at this point. I believe he's obeying, he's, he's obviously obeying, and I'm not just talking about the image of Jesus and what this means for the future of sacrificing your one and only son. There's something far greater going on that God is preparing, and it's going to be important for the people of Israel, but hopefully we can glean something from it. Nevertheless, here Abraham is trusting in God. He had promised this everlasting covenant through his seed Isaac. Of course, God intervened and spared his son's life, and he provided this ram. But do you remember what Abraham called this place? If you look down at verse 14, let's read it together. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, which is Jehovah-Jireh or Yahweh, and they don't have J's in Hebrew, so it would be Yireh, Yahweh-Yireh or Jehovah-Jireh, same words. You, should, you might have a side note in your, or footnote in your Bible that says that. This is the name of God. This is where that first one started. He called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. He made a compound name of God and said, it is. The mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, this mount of the Lord is going to have significance. In the mount of the Lord, there will always be provision. Now, some people um, actually think that there was a miscommunication of exactly where Mount Moriah was. They say that Jesus actually was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, but... That's to be debated about at another time, 
and nor do I think it particularly matters. But I will say this, and one thing that we have very clear in Scripture, is that there, this mountaintop became the centerpiece for worship, not one more time, but at least two more places in Scripture that we can see very clearly. And so I want to um, fast forward to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And I'm trying to set the background backdrop for you here. Now, this may seem very peculiar, but I assure you that this is pertinent. David was tempted by Satan to eat of the fruit. I mean, to number the men of war. But in this incident, God let him chose from, choose from three options what his punishment would be. David decided it was best for pestilence for three days. I don't know what else lasted for three days and then rose again to end death to all mankind. David thought it best to choose a punishment where God, because of his merciful hand, could intervene and spare his own people from the disease, a disease that would be on all the people which would bring death to many. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So God is grieved and he's sorry by this calamity. And he commands Gad the prophet to tell David where to go. He says specifically to go on top of a specific mountain to offer sacrifice so that the effects of sin, I mean the pestilence, would no longer have power of man and cause them to die. Power over man. Spiritual ears. First Chronicles chapter 21, let's look at verse 18. The angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Okay? 21. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out. This was all during while the, the pestilence, the plague was going on. Ornan looked out and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. David said to Ornan, give me this site of this threshing floor that I might build on it the altar to the Lord or to Yahweh. For the full price, you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. And so David buys this land for 15 pounds of gold in modern terms. And what does he do there? Well, he obeys God and he builds this altar. This exact location was the place in which Abraham was to offer up Isaac. The place on this mount where there once stood an altar. Look at verse 26. So David builds an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire. This is God answering David with fire. From heaven on the altar of burnt offering. The Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in his sheath that time when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. So what happens here is David's offering the sacrifices. God is pleased by it. He answers David. And David intends this to be a, or understands this to be, God is pleased with the location and the altar of, of where I have decided or where he has told me to worship. A, he's told him through Gad the prophet, but it was confirmed by the sacrifice being taken up pestilence ending. And so this is how it came to be about that David chose the temple location. Now, how do we know that the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite is the same as Mount Moriah? Well, if you want to flip to now 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles for a while. Not 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. It comes after 1 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 the verse says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. All this background, this backdrop has been set. David has prepared all this stuff for him. He's listened and obeyed his father's words. David dies. He's king now. He begins to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and also the place where Abraham was to offer his son Isaac and instead offered a ram on the altar and called that place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. Chapter 3 of Second Chronicles is about the dimensions of the temple. 
Four is about the furniture that would go inside. Five is about the day that the ark of God has moved from this tabernacle of David, this tent we've been, we talked about last week. They moved it about 2,000 feet to the north on Mount Moriah. Let's pick up there, chapter 5, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2. So Solomon assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion, 2,000 feet away. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. They brought up the ark in the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who were assembled with him before the ark, were sacrificing so many sheep, or literally sheep numbered for a multitude, and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Now, chapter 7, verse 5, tells us that Solomon offered up 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, as does the parallel passage that we read, if you want to read about this later, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 63. Now, it's worth pointing out that the Bible specifically says that the altar could not hold all the sacrifices. You're saying, wait a second, anyone skeptical radars going off? That is a lot of animal. That is a lot of blood. Well, the Bible specifically tells us the altar could not even hold it all. Now, there's a couple things here that I'd point out for those that may be skeptical. No doubt, not the entirety of the animal was to be offered. In fact, they would offer up part of the animal, and then they would eat it, as they did in the Passover feast. This is how sacrifices were done. The priest would take a portion of it, but it also was going to be feeding the people. There were an estimated, there were several million people here that would be estimated to be called together. All, All the tribes and the heads and all the families would have come around for the dedication. It was a big feast, seven days of feasting. Secondly, these sacrifices were taking the place over the course of seven days, and they probably happened continuously and not just all in one day, okay? We don't know the exact details of how it all worked. Thirdly, Solomon specifically had to make a new altar in the middle of the courtyard. You can read about that in chapter 7, just to accommodate the vast quantities of animals that were being slaughtered. And I don't particularly care to try to prove anything, but if you're still skeptical about these numbers, uh, I just point out that historian Josephus writes about how a quarter of a million animals, even more than this, were sacrificed during one Passover celebration in Jerusalem during the time of Nero. A quarter of a million animals. All right, pick up in verse 11, chapter 5. This is one of my favorites in all of the Word of God. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, also known as Ethan, their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres. Those three names sound familiar, don't they? Those instruments sound familiar, don't they? Standing east of the altar and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they had praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of Yahweh was filled with a cloud. so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. It is. In verse 11, we see that the divisions that had been set up by David were not being observed on the special occasion. All the priests would be in service. There would be no hierarchy, there was no rotation. It's not that what David set up was wrong or bad. You can look to the next verse, as we already read. His instruments were there. In fact, the three worship leaders that he had established and their families, 24 sons, these three leaders were also there named by 
name. They were all dressed in fine linen with instruments, and these would be the instruments that David had made for prophetic worship, which we taught about last week. Prophetic worship. It was a new style of worship. There was something new going on. I believe as the anointing of the Holy Spirit fell upon that place, the tabernacle of David, they were inspired with divine utterances of God in the way that they worshipped him, and out came forth Psalms, pretty much the entirety of the book of Psalms written by these men and David. That, that tabernacle, that place where God's presence would rest, would end up touching nations, not just for the people of Israel, but also for us. How many of you are blessed by reading of the Psalms, right? Because they're inspired of God. How do you get inspired by God? Well, worship in His presence for starters. That's what they did. Now, these instruments that David had made for prophetic worship, we know that they're the ones, and 2 Chronicles chapter 7 also says it, the priests stood up at their post, and the Levites also with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for the giving of praise to the Lord. The order at which David had set up this rotation of priests, this perpetual worship, was the standard that God had highly regarded and esteemed. And the instruments which David had made for this purpose are specifically referred to in two other places in Scripture, 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25, and Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 36, refers to these instruments which David made. They were around for a long time. And, and, and so while the Davidic order appears to have been placed on hold during the special dedication service, nothing done that week was contrary to what God had previously honored. And I'm, I'm taking time to say that because a lot of people, it's interesting, they actually look at the life of David and these instruments that he made and they believe that they were sinful. And you have certain pieces of church, it's not very common obviously, that do not believe in instruments being acceptable in the house of God. They believe that it was something that David did out of his own volition, but it's certainly not the understanding that I have in reading it. Certainly in this situation, God was honored. He came down and descended in his glory cloud. Amen. Chapter, or verse 12. The end of 12 says that there's a backup horn section of 120 priests. And here they are, they're singing in unison, they're heard with one voice. I don't know how many times you've been in worship before those that are filled with the Holy Spirit and you've been in a service where everyone breaks out into song, the song that the Holy Spirit places on your heart. And everyone's singing something different and yet it's all in unison and sounds beautiful, doesn't it? This is what I imagine was going on that day is that they're all singing out of their heart an overflow of what, the, of what God is doing, and because His glory has descended upon them, they're being filled with that very presence, and there's an outflow of prophetic utterance. And they're speaking not necessarily the exact same words, but what's coming out is unison and agreement. And they're all standing there, and it's sounding as one beautiful sound coming forth. So all of Israel's there, and they're worshiping with song, and the house of the Lord was filled with this cloud. This cloud of what? glory, a glory cloud, a symbol of God's divine presence, and it was confirmation that God was pleased with not only the temple itself, but also, I would argue, its location. He was pleased by the whole lot of it. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the cloud filled the house of God. What filled the house of God? The glory cloud. Why couldn't they stand? The glory cloud. I don't know about you, but this makes me super excited. Amen. Oh, church, do you know how good it is in His presence? How I long for the day that worship can't continue, that preaching stops, that, that everything stops because His glory has descended upon this place, and we're all laid out flat on the ground. Imagine people to try and get in the doors. Huh. How come they're still going? Why are there cars in the parking lot? We haven't heard from Linda in a while. Linda's going to be the first one that's missed. Everyone, <laughs> she's got a lot of friends around here. <laughs> people are peeking in the door. They see a bunch of people laying down. They probably think that they all got gassed, right? There's a cult, right? So they call EMS. EMS comes and they open the doors. The mighty wind of God 
flattens them down the sidewalk. That's the picture. I'm a, yes, I'm embellishing a little bit, but that's what I'm imagining here. <laughs> now, this is not the first, nor is it the last time that the all-encompassing glory cloud, the house filling, occurred in the Bible. Actually, in Exodus chapter 40, after the priest anointed the tabernacle of Moses, you ever heard of that place, the tabernacle of Moses? We read, Now in the first month of the second year, in the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the glory of the Lord filled not only Solomon's temple, but also Moses' tabernacle. But the Bible speaks actually of one more place, one more house of God that will be filled with His glory cloud. Does anyone know where that is? Ezekiel chapter 43. I know your fingers are getting to work out this morning, but if you want to follow along, you can turn there. Ezekiel chapter 43. Beginning in chapter 40 of Ezekiel is writing about a vision of the future. He gets this long, elaborate vision of a new temple and a new city by a heavenly tour guide. It's much larger and more majestic than even Solomon's temple, which was pretty amazing. Chapter 43, verse 1. So this is the tour. He said, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold... The glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. Interesting there, the earth is shining with His glory. It doesn't say God is, not the temple. The earth itself is shining. God has come down in such a way that He's actually illuminating the earth now. wonder what that might sound like. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city, and the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. That's the glory of the Lord filling a third house. And for me, this is what excites me most about our vision statement. What is it? that the new river valley would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Because the glory of God is not reserved to some Old Testament thing where it's done. Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and it's just done. When we read about the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, it's in the book of Isaiah spoken prophetically. It's in Ezekiel seeing the future temple prophetically. And it's also in Habakkuk prophetically, speaking of things that are still yet to be done. And so when we try to, to personalize this, we should be thinking about what God is yet to do, not only in our lives, but also in this church body, but yet what He will do eventually fully in His very presence when He creates the new heavens and the new earth. This isn't just some slogan that's some grandiose idea. It's not something that's supposed to just point us toward God and, and help us have happy dreams, keep dreaming, Pastor, you know, so that we can run the good fight of faith. Let's just have our eyes. No, it's nothing like that. It's, I believe God wants us to pursue that one thing in the very same way that David did. If we would pursue His very presence, He's going to, I'm not going to say He's going to do everything the way that I see it, the EMS getting knocked out on the sidewalk. Maybe it'll happen, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. We're not doing it for that goal. We're not doing it so that we would be knocked out on the floor. If we would just have in our mind, God, I want a taste of your presence. God, I'm not satisfied with what I'm used to in worship. I'm not satisfied with what I'm carrying around right now. I'm not satisfied with all these other churches and places and experiences I've had in life. Lord, I want one thing that I may seek all the days of my life to dwell in your house, that your house may be filled with your very presence, your glory cloud might descend upon. Lord, just use, start with me, God. Start with me. That if, as we start to, 
each and every one of us individually say, God, I want your presence. God, I want your presence. As we collectively now together have that one focus, that one thing on our very minds, I believe what's going to happen is our church is going to experience it as a whole. I've, I've used this term before, but it, it, I don't want it to sound cliche, but we become carriers of his presence. If you would avail yourself to what he wants to do, it's going to affect people around you. People aren't going to be able to enter into your temple because it's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no room for the devil. People aren't going to have victory or stronghold over you because the Lord goes before you in battle. If you're filled up with His very presence, if you are carrying the ark of God into battle, you're always going to have breakthrough and victory. And only when our temple's completely filled with Him will we see the things that we want to see in the New River Valley. That's why I'm excited about this. See, the glory of God is always connected to worship. It's always in the framework of a temple or a tabernacle, a place where God is to be worshipped. It's either the proper attitude of worship or it's at a house of worship. And I believe that when we all worship Him without hesitation or reservation, without sin or without pride. His glory will descend because He is pleased by the sacrifice that we offer up. Now, there's much that I could say about lip service, and perhaps we will get to that in the coming weeks, but understand that not every so-called act of worship moves God or is pleasing to God. You can do all sorts of festivals and tithes and offerings that are not pleasing to him. He talks about this many times in many places. How he was sick of the people going through these vain works and speaking things of rote that they don't actually mean with their heart. But see, when, we, when our heart is right, when our attitude is right, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's saying that. When we can do it with the right motivation, that's when he's going to be honored and going to be accepting our, our sacrifice to be pleasing. Just like David, the sacrifice on the altar was taken up. It was approved of God. Elijah, on Mount Carmel, it was taken up by a pillar of fire. These, these sacrifices were honorable. They were pleasing to God. And that's how it is in our life. You can cry out to God all you want. And, but if you, you're full of sin and pride and, and arrogant, he's not going to necessarily honor that sacrifice. So we need, to have the same, we need to have the right mindset and heart when we come before him to make sure we're clean. Now, I want to be careful in how I say this because obviously worship is not about us. But the truth is we need worship. We need to worship him more than he needs us to worship him. I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve worship. Don't, don't mishear the words. Nor am I suggesting that we worship to get something in return. What I'm saying is that because God is so generous, when we worship him, it will change us. And we need that change far more than he needs to be changing anybody. God doesn't need anything. He has it all. He's all powerful. He owns it all. When we worship him in the right way, it's going to give us things that we can't get any other way. Again, worship is not about us, you can't, but you can't buy His presence. You can't earn His breakthrough. Oh, but if we, with unveiled face, would minister before Him with pure hearts, we would lift up our hands in the sanctuary, if we would sing to Him a new song, He will descend upon us with His glory because we have been pleasing to Him. And so I would argue that we need to worship Him more than He needs to be worshiped. And church, I don't know how else to say this other than, I just, I'm going to say it again. I want to see His glory. 
I want to see his glory as a pastor. I want to see his glory as a, as a father. I want to see his glory as a husband. I want to see his glory just as a, a lay person. I want to see God's glory. It doesn't matter my position, my role, my lot in life. I want his very presence. But I hope that's the heart cry of you also. The question that I have is, what are you willing to give up to go for it? While it should be obvious that I want this church to grow, of course I want this sanctuary to be filled with families of all ages. Of course I want people to come to Christ in this place. But more than any of that, I want God to be so honored by my worship that His Shekinah would descend upon me. That God would be so honored by our worship as a church that He would descend upon this place. There's a day coming, writes Ezekiel, where God will descend back down to earth and he will fill his temple again. Get some faith. Ask God to give you a revelation of what he wants to do, not just in this church, but also throughout the earth. Why not Tridestone? Why not Blacksburg? Why can't he start here? You know, we talk about this Certainly, we would understand this principle that God often uses the weak in the world because He wants to perform His hand through them, right? He knows that they're not going to take any credit. If you take the, the best athlete in the world and you ask him to, you know, throw a football 30 yards through the uprights, not really impressive, is it? So people believe that he does it in his own strength. But if you take someone who has no arms and ask him to do the same thing, now God has worked through them a miracle and everyone's saying, what is going on in that person's life? That's a really bad metaphor, analogy, but hang with me. When we, when God does things through us that he is only able to do, when he in turn gets glory for that, that's when the the world starts to look. I'm not saying that God can't use big churches, can't use, there's certainly amazing speakers and powerful ministries, and, he, and they're, they're powerful and big largely because they're honoring God. But what I'm trying to say is that God is not looking for powerful pastors. He's not looking for great musicians to bring his presence in. What he's looking for is willing hearts. That's the thing that we ought to get out of David's life. His own father didn't even think he was worthy to be at the, the procession where he could be anointed as potential king. Not even that. He was busy out with the sheep, right? David wasn't even good enough to witness his brothers get anointed king. But it's because David was small in stature, but ultimately because he was a man after God's own heart that God was able to use him so effectively for his kingdom. Why not Tridestone? If we would be a church after God's own heart, amen? Do you know that God's glory cloud has already made several appearances in the church age? Luke chapter 9, this is just before Jesus' death and resurrection. You know the account. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these things, Jesus took along Peter and John and James and went up the mount to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Do you remember the priest when Solomon's temple was being dedicated? They were wearing white linen. Something about purity and coming before God and purity. Behold, two men were walk, talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, here's the glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in, at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Again, glory. As they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Hmm. 
One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed. A what? A cloud. A cloud in the middle of the glory. It formed and began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. What did Peter want to make for Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Tents, tabernacles, houses of worship. Not because he wanted to go camping, wanted to have some marshmallows. Hey, Jesus, now would be a really good time. Let's have a camping trip. <laughs> we often lose the picture because of our English translations. But the, the word in Hebrew would have been sakot or booth or tabernacle. This is the feast that the Jews still celebrate to this day. One week, for an entire week of the year, they will make their little tents and they will dwell in them. It's really quite a sight. They do this in, in New York City. There's a place in Manhattan where they've got it all lined off and you have to be within a certain jurisdiction and radius because you can't go to, for those that can't go to Jerusalem, they do it there in New York City. And what they do is they basically, out on their little patios and decks, they put up these little sheets and coverings. They're supposed to be done with um, branches of trees and things like that. And they dwell in them for an entire week to remember what God brought them out of and to remember the time that they walked around in the wilderness in their little tents, their tabernacles. And it's during this time, this whole week of reflection, that they remember what God has done for them, the provision in which He provided for them in the wilderness. Their shoes did not wear out and they always had food. So it's a time of worship and reflection. Certainly Peter had this on his mind and he was thinking, God, I don't know exactly what's going on right now, Jesus, but I, what I understand right now is that this is an appropriate time to worship. Should I build you a little house, a dwelling, so that we can all have worship together? I don't believe that Peter was being fleshly as he often was. I believe he was trying to worship the best way that he knew how. Where else do we see a cloud in the New Testament? Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, there's a cloud that received Jesus back up into glory. The cloud came down. But we also see, if you were to read Luke 21 and 27 and Revelation 1, 7 and put them together, it says the Son of Man is coming with a cloud with power and with great glory. Is that this cloud, he's going to return in the very same way in which he went up. So we know the cloud that he went up in was within glory and power, and he's going to come down that very same way in power and in glory. We look to that day that Jesus will return. Be ready, church. Not only does our worship invite and prepare the house for His glory, it is your ultimate fulfillment. In some sense, it's what you were created for. If we would only take the time to actively do our part, making sure each of our temples is prepared for His cloud. Does your heart ache to see God's glory filling His temple? There was something significant about the priests coming together in unison, in harmony, to produce the atmosphere that day of Solomon's temple was dedicated. But that temple experience that's outlined in Solomon's day has application for the church today. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is inside of you? Now, I don't want to take away from the possibility, the very real possibility, that the glory of the Lord can be physically felt. I don't know if you've ever been in that service. I have. I felt God's presence in a way. And I don't want to undermine the expectation that one day we won't be able to stand as we minister before the Lord. But we should also not forget that we have a tremendous opportunity to encounter God right here and right now as a church, but also as individuals. If only we would allow the Holy Spirit to groom and prepare us for the responsibilities that we have as priests. Who's the priesthood? 
Your body's a temple. You're the priest. What else do you need? Start making a pleasing sacrifice to God and watch His glory cloud come descend upon your temple. Amen? If we would allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us as priests, I wonder how many songs He has wanted us to sing, but we didn't open our mouths. I wonder how many times we were content just watching when we should have taken up one of the 120 horns and joined in in unison. I wonder how many times we've just been spectators instead of actively being as one of the priests that were called upon the responsibility of that great day of celebration that the glory cloud of God would come descend upon our temple and fill it. Have we stood by as spectators or are we actively ministering to God the Father in our own lives? Here's the thing. We're the priests. The presence of God is inside of us. And I fear that sometimes we do not take that fact as seriously as we should. Do you remember that I said three weeks ago and last week that Saul had not sought out the ark? Do you remember I stressed that the tabernacle of Moses for years was missing the very presence of God? They had a tabernacle. They had a place of worship, but they had no presence of God. That was one of Saul's greatest downfalls is that he did not seek it out. And David's first act as king over Israel and Judah together would be to go back and fetch the ark. He says, we want the presence of God. And, and all the people approved of that. Now apply that to yourselves. Have you gone after the presence of God? Because I'll say this, where you find the ark of God you will find the glory cloud. I wonder if you've gone after the ark. Where you find the presence of the Holy Spirit, you will find His glory. That is, where you find the mercy seat in which He dwells, His cloud of glory will follow. Where you find the Holy Spirit, that place He dwells, his presence and His glory will follow. Go after the Holy Spirit. They, you know, there's so many people that they pitch tent, but they don't retrieve the presence of God. And it's just like the tabernacle of Moses that sat empty for so many years. And they do these acts of worship, and they think that that's good enough. They offer sacrifices, and they just go through the motions, but they don't have the presence of God. David, or God wants us to be like David, where we would just set aside that time in our life. We'd say, God, I want your glory cloud to fill my temple like it did in the day of Solomon. When you have the ark of the presence on the inside of you, you will see his glory. It might be the glory of his work, his salvation, his miracles, his healings. It might be the glory of deliverance. Maybe the glory of breakthrough or revelation. It might be of joy in the midst of adversity. But when God is pleased, when he accepts your sacrifice, I don't believe we will struggle to see His glory. All we need to do is start thinking about what the Lord is doing for us. Dwell on those things. Go after that one thing and say, God, no matter what's going on around my life, Lord, I want to be in an attitude of worship. God, what are you doing in my life? Show me, reveal to me. Holy Spirit, open up my eyes to understanding that I would see how you're moving and active in my life. And as we focus on what God has for us and, and living in the present and the here and the now and say, God, how are you going to use me now? How can I worship you right now? How can your glory cloud descend upon my life that I might affect somebody else right now? That's when we're going to see breakthrough in our own lives, which will ex eventually extend to this church. Don't forget that that place the temple of Solomon was built was chosen for by God. Not by Solomon, not even really by David, but by God all the way back to Abraham some 1,100 years earlier. I'm going to dedicate this mountain as a place where worship will happen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God has dedicated your body as his very temple to be a place where worship can happen. 
Not the moment that you were born, not the moment that you were conceived, but before you were even a thought in your parents' minds. God had dedicated the place of your body to be a habitation of His very presence. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those whom He called, He also predestined. He's called you. He saw that little mountain of Moriah called Julie, called Kathy, called Louie, and He said, Abraham, I want you to go make a sacrifice there. And it's on the mount of your life that there was a pleasing sacrifice that was offered up. Then you fast forward to the day the temple was built. You gave your life to Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit was invited down and filled you. My question is, do you still have the presence of the ark of God inside the temple or have you forgotten it? Are you continually seeking God's glory cloud or have you just given yourself over to vain worship? God is pleased with you. He has accepted you. He has chosen you. He's accepted you in the sacrifice of His Son, Christ Jesus. And now you are a holy temple dedicated for worship and service to Him. And I just wonder what you might expect to happen as your body, His temple, is filled with His glory. Beloved, if you are in Christ Jesus, then God is pleased with your temple. Oh, but I'm not qualified. Oh, but I'm not good at If you are in Christ Jesus, He is pleased with your temple. Some of you need to hear that. You're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting for something in your life to get right in order before you can fully surrender yourself to God. But God is saying, if, if you are in my Son, then you have gone about this the right way. The temple that you have built up has actually been built up by me. So don't be knocking my temple. And I'm confident that His presence and His habitation will be with you as long as you keep the presence of His ark in you. 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3. Let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. In these last days, we need the ark of God's presence. You can't buy it with money. There's no price tag on it. Jesus paid for it. It was made possible for it to be yours. I wonder if you're reaching for it. I wonder, do you really want it? The Lord delights in giving you His very present. Why not reach out and take it from Him?